Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. Through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we're carrying on a series today that we began last week in the Ten Commandments. Here's a picture of Moses carrying one of the stone tablets. That's Charlton Heston. Um, I want to start by introducing you to somebody called Augustine, sometimes known as St. Augustine. He was born in AD 354, so middle of the 4th century. And Augustine is an interesting character. His, his father was a pagan and his mother was a Christian. And he has this kind of tension running through his life. And in his early years, he, he didn't, wasn't at all interested in his mother's faith. And he decided to uh, indulge his, his, ple- his pleasures and his desires in life, as young boys and teenagers are wont to do. And he describes his life story in a book called The Confessions, in which he reveals that as he was growing up, he basically became addicted to sex. He got away from home, he got a mistress, still in his teens, and uh, he had a child by her, and later on uh, took on another mistress. But he was never really satisfied never really happy, never really free. Until eventually one day, after a long struggle and a search, because he was a philosopher, he was reading and studying, he eventually was in a garden in a house in Milan. And he heard a voice repeating the words, tole lege, take and read. And he felt that it was a voice coming to him from God, telling him to read the Bible. He had a copy of the Bible with him. So he picked it up and opened it. And it opened on this page from the letter to the Romans, which says, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And at that moment, he said, all the darkness left his mind and his heart was changed towards God. Now, Augustine became one of the great thinkers of the Western world, and he later wrote these words. Great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power, and of your wisdom there is no end. Man, being part of your creation, longs to praise you. You arouse us to delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Let me just read that again. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, we were made for God. We were made to relate to him. We were made to obey him in an exclusive love relationship. And in that relationship, we would have found fulfillment. We were made for his glory not ours, we were made to serve him, to put him first. And in seeking God's glory, we would have found our highest good. That's how we were wired up. That's how we were made in the beginning, and it's still there in our DNA. Homo sapiens is also homo adorans, man the worshipper. And we're by nature made to worship and serve God. But Augustine was right, our hearts are restless now until they find their rest in the living God. 
God alone is going to be the source of true peace and true freedom and true fulfillment for us. That's what we're made for. But it's not where we find ourselves going by nature. We search all sorts of alternative avenues for that rest. Because we're spiritually bent out of shape. Now looking at you, you all look in pretty good shape. You look pretty well. That's my wife laughing. But you know what? Even if we're in good shape and good health, we are spiritually deformed, according to the Bible. We have a twisted, wicked instinct to create our own gods rather than follow the true God. Now, I wonder if that sounds implausible. Let me ask you a couple of questions. What is really running your life? What's running your life on Monday morning? What is determining your priorities? Things that you choose to do, the things that are important. What makes you happy when you have it and broken-hearted when you don't? What is the thing that when it is threatened or taken away, it makes you angry enough to die? Now, some people may already see some of the answers to that, but others, maybe it will take more reflection. But here's why those questions are so important. Because they show what your God is. The thing that runs your life, determines your priorities, makes you happy, makes you want to die. In the biblical view of life, the living God is the one who should run our lives, determine our priorities, fuel our joy. Yet we hate the fact that God has to be in charge. We hate the idea of obeying God on his terms. So our hearts constantly seek out other gods. And in the Bible, these gods are sometimes called idols. Our hearts attach themselves to these idols, to created things that aren't God, and we insist that they try and fill the place of God, but it never works. So we chuck out the idols and move on to a different one. Now, I want to dig into this a bit more. I've got a really long introduction and then three very short points, okay? In case anyone starts to fear for their lunch. Let me dig into this a bit more with the help of a wonderful writer called Dick Kyes. Kyes argues that human beings cannot live without a God because we were made for him. And the, the true God is has sort of two dimensions. He's awesome and great. He's out there. He's transcendent. He's also close and near and intimate and personal. The clever people call it imminent. So how can we compensate for this loss of this God who is both great and awesome and personal and intimate? Kai says we do it with pairs of idols, pairs of false gods. No one idol can do the job. So we have... Pairs, and he says we have near and far idols. A near idol is a controllable, comforting, principal thing that substitutes for God's closeness. A far idol compensates for the loss of the great God, and it provides some kind of overarching explanation for life and meaning and purpose. Let me give an example. An idol can be an over-attachment to something that's good. Family, career, marriage. They're good things. But what is not good is the over-attachment. And modern people, therefore, have millions of idols. Quite undeveloped compared to the ancient world, but we have loads of them. Anything can function as a god substitute for a little while. And then people move on, taking one thing and chucking out and moving to the next one. 
The near idol, the close one, flows from our sense of a need for control in the world. Jeremiah 10 says this, Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. See, an idol is a bit like a scarecrow. It's totally your construction, you made it, and it does a job for you. It gives you a sense of control. It is a tame God. Some people have collections. Often men have a collection of stamps or model aeroplanes or a railway set that's really beautiful and it's up in the loft. Or they have loads of vinyl records, which, by the way, are better than CDs and MP3s. <laughs> and having this collection kind of gives them a sense of control. Now, it's a sort of pole of order in the world. Other people, I'm not going to make any gender stereotypes here, gain the sense of control by keeping the house clean. When the house is clean and tidy, they feel at rest, they're in control. It's a near idol. But for the big questions in life, the near idol is not big enough. We need something to give a sense of meaning for the future. So whenever there's a near idol, there's also a far one. And the far idol kind of flows from our need to have a sense of meaning. Here are some examples. A near idol could be money. That's something you can sort of control, isn't it? You can check your bank balance and do a budget spreadsheet and tell somebody off because they use their credit card. You have some sort of control over money. And then the far... I mean, money doesn't give you an explanation for how life works. So your far idol might be chance, fate. Oh, it just happens. Or a near idol can be sexual pleasure. We have a certain degree of control over that. The far idol, the thing that gives it explanation for the whole world, is freedom. That's what gives my life meaning, is that I'm free. Or a near idol can be expertise. Some people are defined by the fact that they're really good at something. You know, they're very, I just looked over there and caught the, the eye of the tech guys. And I didn't, they're, it's not in the notes, but you know, people who are really good at tech, or, or um, they know how to do computers, or yeah, it can be anything. That sort of gives you something near that comforts you. And I, I've got control in my world. But far, that's not enough to, to give you an explanation for life. So you might have to go with a vision of progress. That the world is moving on and that we're getting better and better. You see how these pairings kind of work? There's a near one and a far one. But these false gods always backfire. They promise power, but they enslave. The near idols enslave us when we find we can't keep total control, even over the house. So we get more and more frantic about cleaning. And the far idols, they just kind of evaporate at our moment of greatest need. When life goes horribly wrong, believing in fate or freedom is not much of a comfort. An idol promises life and then it kills you. Nothing in this world is sufficient to bear the greatness of your soul. Nothing except the one who made you, who made you for himself. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Now, I know what I've been saying so far seems a bit out there and about three feet above the Bible text, but we are going to get there. I want to say first, though, from personal experience, that there is nothing more real than what we're talking about today. I've seen people's lives fall apart when their idols failed them. 
And it is is always shocking. And it's very often heartbreaking. Over the last three years, even in the last year, I've seen very dear friends go through terrible heartbreak, depression, suicidal thoughts, and despair. Because they built their lives around some of these idols. And when the idol failed, life fell apart. It's not abstract. This is deeply personal. And I can't even tell their stories in public. But what I've noticed is this. Very often, people seem to be going along fine and doing really quite well. Their lives seem sorted. In fact, I've sometimes been tempted to doubt whether the Christian gospel had much to offer them. They just seem so together. They seem to have life all figured out. And part of me doubted whether the Christian gospel would ever really connect. Why would they ever feel they needed it? And then these dear friends, whose lives seem so together, suddenly collapsed. It wasn't gradual. In each case, it was as if the whole pack of cards collapsed at once. That's what idols do. Now then, in a group of people this size, there may well be someone or some people who are in just this situation at the moment. And there are going to be people here who will be in this predicament in the future. And there are people here who know someone whose life is currently falling apart because their idols have failed them. So there's nothing more important for us today than to understand the Bible's remedy for this tremendous problem. And here it is, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. There's a solution to our predicament. It is to make the living God absolutely, number one, preeminent in our life. To serve him and build our life around him. To love him, to live for him, to listen to his voice, to obey him. To surrender the fortress of our heart to him, to give him all that we are. You shall have no other gods before me. That means get rid of every single idol and be ruthless about it. Now then, that commandment is so short that you may wonder how I can find anything more to say about it. But don't worry, I've got three points. <laughs> they're all very brief, and they're all questions. The first one is, what does before me mean? The second is, why is this the first commandment? And the third one is, how can I be free? What does before me mean? You shall have no other gods before me. Now, this is slightly problematic, isn't it? It sounds like the Bible is sort of almost admitting that there might really be some other gods out there, and God just making sure he stays top of the pile. Sort of a prioritization exercise, you know, get him to the top of the in-tray, save the last dance for me. Well, the Exodus story, the first 19 chapters of this book, has made it very, very clear that there is only one God. In fact, God has really taken his time to rescue the children of Israel. He didn't just sweep them out of Egypt on day one, but he engaged in an epic conflict with the king, Pharaoh. God's man, Moses, went into Pharaoh and asked him to let the people go, but Pharaoh refused. And this started a standoff in which God threatened and then delivered ten plagues. And at any point, Pharaoh could have taken the, uh, you know, called quit and taken the fork in the road and let the people go. But he refused and hardened his heart and refused again. Now, the fascinating thing about those plagues 
It's not really how they might have happened or what they looked like. It's this. The plagues are a humiliation of the Egyptian gods, so-called. The Egyptians worshipped the river Nile. So guess what? God changed the Nile to blood. The Egyptians had a frog deity. So God sent a plague of frogs, which was enough to make you wish you never saw a frog again. The Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh, who's said to be the incarnation of a god. So the final plague is judgment on his firstborn, who dies. What is going on here? The whole exercise is a massive lesson to the Israelites that there is only one true God, and they can trust him fully. The gods of the Egyptians are bankrupt and empty and fraud and humiliated. But before God can get the Israelites out of Egypt, he has to get Egypt out of the Israelites. See, they've been living there, spending all his time with these other people and, and worshipping their gods. And he has to show them now that these idols have been, they've been following are bankrupt and they don't count, they don't even exist. He has to make them fall out of love with the idols before they can fall in love with him. And that has to happen to us too. Has it ever happened to you? Has God brought things into your life that have made you despair and, and, and despise the things that you've clung to and you've realized that they're, not, they're worthless, they're nothing, that you can't count on them and you need him? Then if, if you hear his voice, don't deny it. There's only one God. So why does it say, you shall have no other gods before me? Well, this phrase is pretty interesting. It can be taken in a couple of different ways. One way of reading it is literally before me, like this stand is before me, in front of me, in my presence. And taken like that, then it's a reminder that we are always in God's presence. We're always before him. You may be here on Sunday, singing, joining in, prayers and readings and public worship, but which God are you following on Monday morning? Is your life one of worship to the true God all week long? If you're following another God on Monday, he notices. It's in his presence. It's before him. He is deeply and rightly offended by that. Now, the other possible meaning of before me is except or beside me. So you could say, you shall have no other gods except me. And that's a demand for total loyalty, total fidelity, complete devotion. The living God will not tolerate rivals for your affections. He has given you everything that you have. He's pursued you with love and mercy and goodness. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross to seek and to save that which was lost. And Jesus rose from the dead to conquer death and guarantee your future. He ascended to heaven. He's pleading with the Father on your behalf. He sends his spirit to you, to live in you, to lead you, to wake you up, to give you a conscience, to bring you, to comfort you. Now, in the light of all that God has done, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for you, can you see how heinous it is to fail to give him complete devotion? Can you see how disgraceful it is to flirt with idols? Can you see how any rival for your affections, even a child, even a, a spouse or a family, is deeply unworthy. He has shown ultimate loyalty to you. The only appropriate response is absolute loyalty to him. 
Anything less is spiritual adultery. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He's always there. We owe him our total loyalty. Secondly, why is this the first commandment? It's the first commandment because it's the foundation of all the others. It's the rock on which you can build a life. And you never break any of the other commandments without breaking this one first. Let me give an example. The tenth commandment in verse 17. uh, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, you see how coveting plays out. Now, we all know what this feels like. Someone moves into a new flat, and you go around to see them. And you're pleased for them, but secretly, you covet that flat. You're walking around saying, this is great! But inside, secretly, part of you is dying. Now, covetousness affects all of us in different ways. For some people, it's coveting another person's mode of transport. I wish I had a bike like Chris Stevens. (laughs) And he's got more than one. For some, it is their partner. You know, that person who's got a particularly good-looking other half. I don't struggle with this at all. (laughs) For others, it's money. You know, someone's got money and it just eats you up. Or talents. You know, some people, they're just very gifted at certain things. I always wanted to be really good at football, and it's, it's not going to happen. I'm 42. You know, those, that dream is over if it ever began. You can covet someone's abilities. You can covet their children. The list just goes on and on and on. Now, it's one thing to admire something, but coveting takes it a step further. Covetousness takes us into a dark place where we despise what we have And we crave what someone else has. And you know what? It is never satisfied. The essence of covetousness is never satisfied. Because it always wants what it does not have. Now we'll think more about covetousness when we get to the 10th commandment. But for now I just want to make this point. You never break the 10th commandment unless you've broken the first commandment first. How? Because the heart of covetousness is I don't have enough, I am lacking, I don't have sufficient for my needs, I'm not fully satisfied, I'm not complete, I need more. But if we really keep and believe the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, we would know that we have God himself. The living God, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, there's a lot of stake who has bound himself to us in a relationship of deathless love. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, he says in Exodus 19. I carried you on eagle's wings to myself. God has given himself to you, and you're yearning for someone else's girlfriend. God is God. Isn't he enough? Can't he provide for you and your needs? So the first commandment is the foundation for all the others. And it's the foundation for life itself. We don't need the idols. We've got God. Now I hope by now we've started to sense how these commandments show up our hearts. And how sinful we really are when it gets down to it. And how we've sold out to idols. So, finally, and importantly, how can I be free? 
you've been listening today and it's dawned on you that you have not been living life for the one true God, that is great. You have come to the right place. God has been working in your life to bring you to himself and it's no accident that you are here today in this meeting. You've been chasing these false gods and you found that in reality they gave you no freedom at all. And God loves you too much to let you carry on in that way. So he's tapping on your window, very gently at first, so gently you could almost miss it. Now let me urge you to listen if you hear God's voice. Don't continue in that way of idols because God will keep coming after you and the longer you resist him, the more painful it can become. Just read the story of the prophet Jonah. And if you've woken up to the reality of what breaking this commandment means, then I hope you're thirsting to know the way out of slavery, the way to freedom. And there is only one way. It is by following Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ is the great king. He is uh, the only human being who kept this commandment with total integrity. He never wavered. He never put any other gods before the true God, even in the furnace of temptation. He was tempted by the devil. He was taken out into the wilderness. He was weak and famished after fasting 40 days. And the devil showed him a dazzling vision of all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give you all their authority and splendor. For it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I please. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That meant choosing the hard path of suffering for Jesus. And he set his face to it and never looked back. He kept the first commandment. It meant that he was pushed to the limit. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew he was soon going to be captured and he'd soon be facing the cross. And it says, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Yet he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. That is a man keeping the first commandment when a lot of what's inside him is screaming out to take the easy route. He put God's will first. He was obedient to death, even death on the cross. And as he hung on a shameful Roman torture instrument, Jesus prayed for those who were cursing him. He made provision for his mother to be looked after. He forgave the dying thief and he finished his work. He cried out, it is finished. Then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. Now how does this relate to you and me? How does this help us to be free from idols and free to keep the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. We can do it because Jesus has kept the first commandment for us. By his perfect life, he shows us that a human can obey God, can keep God's law, can live a full, rich, wonderful life by walking with God day by day. He is the great example. But more than that, by his death, he paid for our sins. He took away their punishment and penalty and he gave us a new life. He sets us free from idols by giving us a new heart, a whole new set of affections. And we are changed by considering him. 
Because now we have something even greater than these people, the Israelites. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he is the new object of our affections. And by adoring him, and beholding him, and believing him, and thinking about him, and considering him, and building our lives around him, we are changed. The letter to the Hebrews concludes with these words towards the end of it, which contrasts what happened at Mount Sinai with what we have as Christians. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's who we come to when we're confronted with this commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So Hebrews says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray.